up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, we'll hear about a new method of reducing the risk of stroke in some patients who have atrial fibrillation. They will remain on blood thinners for at least a month and a half. Um, this allows for the heart tissue to grow over the watchman device. Then we'll discuss how doctors, nurses, and social workers are working to reduce the rate of repeated violent trauma. More than not, those patients are going right back up to the same environment which brought them here. So our goal is for Chanel to be able to reach out to these patients and offer them the alternatives. And we'll learn how a new hospital unit for adolescent psychiatric patients will help improve mental health services for youth in central New York. It's not only about medications, but the services we offer provide recommendations for all modalities of treatment. All that, plus a selection from our Healing Muse, coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air your chance to explore medicine, science, and health with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll talk about reducing the rate of repeated violent trauma, and we'll learn how a new hospital unit for adolescent psychiatric patients will help improve mental health services for youth in Central New York. But first, we'll hear about a new method of reducing the risk of stroke in some patients who have atrial fibrillation. Atrial fibrillation is an abnormal heart rhythm that can increase a person's risk of having a stroke. There's a relatively new way to help reduce the risk for some patients. Here to talk about it is Dr. Jamal Ahmed, an invasive cardiac electrophysiologist in the Upstate Heart and Vascular Center, and nurse Scott Davis, who is the Watchman Procedure Coordinator there. Welcome to you both. Thank you very Good much. Again. Thanks for being here. Let's begin with a, a brief description of what atrial fibrillation is and how it affects our health. Well, atrial fibrillation is a heart rhythm disorder, uh, which uh, basically puts the patient's heart rhythm completely erratic and irregular. It lends itself uh, to a lot of problems, um, mainly the risk of stroke, um, but also a risk of congestive heart failure as well. So is it something that we're born with, or is it something that develops as we get older? Uh, it's something that you develop over time. Um, there are some genetic predispositions to that, but most of the times it's uh, something we acquire uh, as we age. And is it equally um, affecting men and women? Um, no, the propensity is different between men and women, uh, and depending on the age group, in certain age groups women are more affected, and in certain age groups men are more affected. Um, but uh, generally, there are other risk factors like uh, being overweight or having other conditions like high blood pressure, diabetes, other heart diseases, uh, sleep apnea uh, that would lend uh, the patient to then develop atrial fibrillation. All right. And um, we said that it increases a person's risk of stroke. Why, why is that? So um, the upper chambers, which we call the atria, um, beat in a very regular fashion. They squeeze the blood into the bottom chambers of the heart and the blood then goes to the rest of the body. When the heart goes into atrial fibrillation, the upper chambers of the heart start uh, beating at almost 400 beats per minute, which basically means the upper chambers are no longer squeezing. Mm. So the, there's stagnation of blood in the upper chamber of the heart. And then particularly there's one particular pocket in the upper chamber of the heart, which is called the left atrial appendage where the stagnation is the most and clots form over there. 
So this left atrial appendage, I've never heard of that before. Does everyone have one of those? Yes. So it, it looks like it's just this sort of like pocket off the side. Exactly. Of you can almost think of it as a, a pocket in the heart or a, a cup almost. Okay. And we don't know why it's there or what it does? Uh, well, we know why it's there. It's actually um, embryologically when the heart's developing, it's the actual part of the left atrium. Um, but it becomes redu- small in um, the rest of the left atrium, which is the neo left atrium, is the veins that plug into the heart become the left atrium. So the left atrial appendage uh, becomes an appendage and almost looks like a, a cup or a windsock that just hangs oh, on the side windsock. of the heart. Okay. All right. Well, um, let's, let's say briefly sort of what sorts of treatments um, are offered at the Heart and Vascular Center for atrial fibrillation. Scott, you see a lot of patients that come through with AFib. What, what sorts of treatments are they getting? Um, we do uh, ablations to treat atrial fibrillation. So a patient come in, we can isolate the source of that signal coming into the heart. So we can actually block that signal coming into the heart to prevent the patient from having AFib. And ablation is sort of a burning uh, tissue to destroy we, tissue? We do it either by burning tissue or, in fact, more frequently now, freezing tissue. Oh, cool. That's another one of the procedures that we do with Dr. Ahmed and, and the other electrophysiologists at the hospital. Okay. All right. And then uh, there's this new method now that helps reduce the risk of stroke, correct? Yes. So um, patients who have atrial fibrillation, um, not everyone, but there are certain risk factors that uh, puts them at a high risk for a stroke. Um, And if their score for stroke is high, um, those patients are traditionally put on blood thinners. Um, The the old blood thinner was... uh, warfarin, uh, the rat poison. Mm-hmm. Um, it works very well in humans, actually. Um, and it thins your blood, um, and it basically prevents the formation of clot in the heart. But there's a trade-off. Your blood is thin. You're at risk for bleeding. Um, so patients who are otherwise at high risk for bleeding may get into trouble otherwise. So you're preventing a stroke, but yet they may have a bleed through their gut, or they may even bleed in their brain, or something like that may happen. So there's a subset of patients who we would love for them to be on blood thinners so that they don't end up with a stroke from AFib, but when we do put them on blood thinners, they end up having a catastrophic bleed somewhere else. Other problems. Other problems. So that's how traditionally we treated uh, uh, atrial fibrillation and reducing the risk of stroke. Um, But now with this new alternative, those high-risk patients um, can have an option where they can be off the blood thinners yet not have a high risk for stroke. Okay, and, ha- and what is that then? So this is the procedure we call the left atrial appendage closure, uh, which we do it now non-surgically, and it's called the Watchman procedure. Watchman procedure or left atrial appendage closure. Right. Okay, um, what's involved with that? So basically, um, in short, uh, we run up a wire from the leg into the heart, find the left atrial appendage and deploy this filter-like or so to speak an umbrella in that windsock uh, shape appendage which basically closes it off. So this um, windsock shaped appendage is where a lot of the clots form? Most of the clots. Most of the clots form. So if you can block it off in some way so that 
I mean, clots might still form there, but they can't get out. They can't get out, get in, get out. Huh. Blood cannot get into it. Blood cannot get out of it. Okay. And um, so this is a like an umbrella. What's it? What's it made of? Um, it's uh, it's a self-deploying, self-expanding metal, um, and has a a cloth on it, which allows the the heart tissue to grow over it. Okay. And it's um, what? How big would you say it is? Um, like there are multiple sizes. So it comes. There are five sizes. They range from twenty-one millimeters up to thirty-three millimeters. Is that how how big is that? So think of like a quarter, a dime, um, yeah, think I think dime the, size up to slightly larger than a quarter. Okay. Up, you wanna it, silver dollar? Sure. sure. <laughs> depending on the size of depending the patient, the, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Depending on the size of the patient's right. anatomy, there there are various sizes of the device that are available to accommodate those various sizes. Yeah. And then, um, so you were mentioning it's installed through a, a, a like a guide wire. Is it like a catheterization yeah, it's procedure? It's a catheterization. Okay. Um, we, just like all catheterizations that patients may be familiar with, we go up through the leg, uh, we go into the heart, um, and then we find the back side of the heart by making a tiny puncture there. Um, and we go into the left atrial appendage. Once we are there, we measure the size of the left atrial appendage to see what size of watchman would need to be deployed. And then it is delivered over there, we test it, make sure it's nice and secure before we release it into the heart. Is it sewn into place? No. What, you so just it's a self-expanding nitinyl metal uh, stent uh, that basically, as you deploy it, it enlarges until it meets resistance. Um, and then that's where it gets deployed. And then tissue grows and sort of anchors right. it? It has place? its own small anchors. And the patient, in terms of this, um, has this done, and they stay overnight or not? Generally overnight, one night stay. We make sure that everything's okay, um, and they're safe for uh, discharge, um, and then they go home the next day. Now, it is important to note that the patients do not come off the blood thinners right off the bat. Oh, they don't? They do not. So they would remain on blood thinners for at least a month and a half. Um, this allows for the heart tissue to grow over the watchman device. Okay. And once that has happened, we confirm that that has happened uh, with another uh, imaging test. And when that confirms that the watchman is secure and uh, there's no further blood flow into the appendage, we change the patient's blood thinners to a, an aspirin or another blood thinner. So it's Less okay to thinners. take aspirin? Eventually, the goal is to leave the patient on an aspirin. Okay. Uh, well, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Jamal Ahmed and Nurse Scott Davis from the Upstate Heart and Vascular Center about the new Watchman procedure. Um, Scott, I wanted to ask you, how do you prepare patients for this? How do you explain what they'll be going through, the patients and their families? So we do have videos that we can show the patient. Um, I will call them on the phone and explain to them that it's a, a very simple, basic procedure. I'll explain to them they'll come into the hospital um, that morning. We will um, review all their history and their meds, um, explain to them that they'll come into the EP lab and that we will put them to sleep, that they won't feel anything during the procedure, that they'll be spending the night. I run through all of the me uh, medications that they'll be on afterwards, um, that they'll be coming back 45 days later again for the test that Dr. Ahmed spoke to, um, answering all of their questions that they will have. Um, and of course, they'll have seen Dr. Ahmed prior to the procedure. So really, it's, it's a pretty simple and straightforward procedure. Um, 
So that's all right. So let's talk about who is and who is not a candidate for a Watchman device. So patients who uh, need to be on blood thinners who are considered high risk for stroke, and we go by a scoring system. Um, but once their score has crossed that uh, cutoff, then they would be candidates. So there are low risk patients with atrial fibrillation that do not require blood thinners and do not require a Watchman either. Um, then there are high-risk patients who require blood thinners but cannot take blood thinners because of bleeding risk um, or patients who have a lifestyle that does not lend them to be on blood thinners, you know, stuntmen. Oh, you know, okay. The poster child for a watchman is Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh, okay. He has a watchman. I didn't realize that. Right, because he would not even get to be allowed to do stunts with blood thinners. Okay. So if you're in that line of work where you are at risk for injuring yourself and you're on blood thinners and you expose yourself to high risk of bleeding, then that would be an option that you would pick even though you don't have an internal bleeding problem otherwise. Okay. So a patient preference could be considered if it's valid or if the patient cannot safely be on blood thinners on the long-term basis. And then uh, the device itself is made of titanium or nickel yes. or... Yes, it's a, and it's a titanium alloy. So, it's so an, you couldn't yes. be allergic to that? Could not so. be allergic to that. Um, other than that, it's generally... Generally, but again, we mentioned at the start of this conversation that it's for non-valvular atrial fibrillation, so patients who have valvular heart disease. So if you have a heart valve issue, this is not... If you have a severe heart valve issue, um, then this is not the procedure for you. And one of the reasons for that is that sometimes for valve issues, you need to be on blood thinners. And this does not take you off that list. This wouldn't do. Okay. Now, what if you end up having the watchman installed, and then later on you develop something that the treatment would be, you know, you need blood thinners for it? What? The watchman only treats one condition, uh, and that is the risk of clot forming from atrial fibrillation in the appendage. There are multiple reasons why patients have to be on blood thinners. So if they ended up needing something prescribed later, that's a different issue, and this wouldn't interfere with that. It would not interfere, and they would have to go on blood thinners for other reasons if they have to. Okay, interesting. Um, and then afterward, aspirin thins the blood. Are you able to take aspirin for like a headache? Yes, or? actually aspirin is the long-term treatment after the watchman. So okay. we leave patient on some minor blood thinner. So it's very important to note that that's, uh, that they have to take at least an aspirin or be able to take at least an aspirin on a daily basis uh, for a long-term basis to get a watchman. All right. Does this procedure alleviate the need for any other AFib treatments? Or would you, I mean, it doesn't really treat AFib. It does not. So, so atrial fibrillation, one of the problems with atrial fibrillation is a stroke. Which, for which is either blood thinner or now this alternative is watchman. But most patients come with atrial fibrillation because they feel their heart pounding out, the, out of their chest. It's a very rapid erratic heartbeat. They do not like the way it makes them feel. Um, they can get dizzy lightheaded, they can get short of breath with that. And for that, we either give them medications to control the atrial fibrillation, or like Scott mentioned, uh, we perform an ablation where we go and find the spots in the heart that cause atrial fibrillation and destroy them by either freezing or uh, cauterizing them with radiofrequency. 
Interesting. Well, thank you both for being here. My guests have been Dr. Jamal Ahmed and Nurse Scott Davis, both from the Upstate Heart and Vascular Center. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, the Violence Education Prevention Outreach Program. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. State Medical University. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. With a level one trauma center designation, Upstate University Hospital is the place where many victims of violent crime receive medical care. But did you know hospital providers are active in efforts to prevent violent crime? Here to talk about the Violence Education Prevention Outreach Program are social worker Chanel Beard and trauma injury prevention coordinator Kim Nasby. Thank you both for being here. Thank you for having us today. Thank you. So let's talk about um, how this program began. Um, How did it get started? So the VPOP program actually started um, a few years ago um, with the initiative from one of our own trauma surgeons who um, takes care of uh, these violence victims when they come into the trauma bay. And um, he had some experience in working with troubled youth um, and incarcerated individuals. Um, He had a program at the jail, at the county jail, Um, where he would uh, do an outreach uh, prevention program himself to kind of um, let people know that we're incarcerated, that there are other options for them once they um, come out of the system um, so that they don't keep perpetuating the violence. So um, Dr. Ali was the one who kind of started this program with our director of social work, Mark Budaleri, um, a few years ago. And it was kind of a grassroots program that started a few years ago. And we were lucky enough um, in the past um, year to receive a donation um, through the foundation, the Upstate Foundation, to fund a, um, a full-time social work position um, for this program so that we can expand our reach. So that is how we got Chanel Beard um, oh. as, as part of our program. And she is a dedicated 100% Um, VPOP social worker. So she is able to deal with all of our community partners for this program. What are uh, the community partners? These are outside of Upstate. They are outside of Upstate. So to have a productive um, injury prevention program that is hospital-based, we are kind of the vehicle to get um, individuals um, the services that they need. But we don't offer all of the services, obviously, here at Upstate because we're a hospital. So we have to partner with our community um, to make sure that all the services that are available in the community are offered to these individuals. So that's where Chanel comes in. Okay, putting people in touch with whatever they need. Now, people involved with VPOP, nurses, surgeons, social workers, right? Yes. So it's it's a broad spectrum. So when um, individuals come into um, the emergency department here at Upstate, 
every person actually is screened for violence, um, for uh, street-related violence. So even if you are here for something that might be like a motor vehicle crash, for instance, which is another kind of trauma we deal with here, um, you will be screened for um, violence to see if you have any violence um, or if that caused this injury that you're being seen for today. When you say everyone is screened for violence, is that a question that um, a nurse might ask in the emergency department? It is. So you're screened through our triage process, and you are also screened if you end up in our trauma bay. So there's two different ways that you could be coming into the emergency department. One is just like a walk-in, and the other you would be coming by ambulance. So both of them actually get screened, and we have a lot of different screening tools here at Upstate. So it's it's one of many tools that we have. So we screen for other things like... Uh, domestic violence. We screen for heart disease. We screen for a lot of things. This just happens to be one of them. And we are able to generate a list so that Chanel then has a tool to use to reach out to victims um, so that they can get the services that they need. Well, Chanel, tell me how you or or why you um, uh, got involved in violence prevention. Why is that something that's important to you? Well, I'm a lifelong resident of Syracuse. I actually, I was born and raised here. I went to the Syracuse City School District my entire life. I went to Syracuse University. So um, it's actually something that's very near and dear to my heart, something that I'm very passionate about. It's something that has somewhat been in my own backyard. And so it's something that I wanted to be able to contribute to helping. Neat. Well, now, the, the goal, as I understand it, is to reduce the rate of recidivism of violent trauma. So how do you do that? That sounds like a huge order. It, it is, but I, I think, and Kim, you can jump into whenever you'd like, but I, I think what the VPOP program aims to do is just to offer an alternative way of living. And so, you know, we're all able to, we're all able to do that by offering resources that these patients sometimes don't always have access to, like a primary care provider. That's our goal to make sure everyone who comes through the program has a primary care provider. Um, With the help of our community partners, we have mentorship. Um, We try to prevent retaliation, any type of violent retaliation, mental health resources. Um, If people are interested in going to school, getting back into school, if they have housing or safety concerns, those are all things that the VPOP program addresses and offers. Wide-ranging, then. It seems like every facet of, like, life, basically. Yep. It's very wide-ranging, and the the research that's behind um, hospital-based violent prevention programs really uh, focuses on that public health model. So it is not just one particular thing that is causing this violence within communities. It is a public health issue, um, and we are able to work with many disciplines across the spectrum to kind of address this issue. So we sit on a steering committee that it, um, with the mayor's office and the county commissioners and uh, the Syracuse Police Department, um, the Syracuse City School District, um, the Southwest Community Center is vital to Huge. this program. Um, so our recidivism rate, when we talk about that, so it's kind of a big word that we use sometimes. And all that means is most of our patients that are seen here for a violent injury um, due to street violence. So this is um, our gunshot wounds, stabbings, and assaults usually that come in. Um, This is not a program for domestic violence. We have separate programs for that. So this is really related to street violence. 
And most of those patients who have been seen in our institution for um, serious traumas, and we call those level one or level two traumas, um, have been seen here in the past for maybe a maybe not so serious injury. So for instance, if someone has come into the hospital that has had a maybe a gunshot wound to the leg that is not considered life-threatening, but maybe they got grazed, they were seen here in the emergency department, we clean them up, we fix them, we, we, and then they get discharged. Um, more than not, those patients are going right back out to the same environment which brought them here. So our goal is for Chanel to be able to reach out to these patients and offer them the alternatives to change their path um, so that they don't come back here with a more serious injury the next time. So you may, you're helping victims of violent trauma, but you may end up helping people who are perpetrators. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Yes. And for us as a, as a trauma center, um, we don't ever use that word. No. Um, because for us as healthcare providers, um, as a social worker, as a nurse, um, anybody who's been a victim is a patient of ours. And it for us, it doesn't matter if they're the perpetrator or if they were part of whatever brought them here. Our goal is to help them. Right. So and first, they may have the same needs or very similar needs. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, like Chanel said, she she works with our community partners on a weekly basis, sometimes a daily basis. Maybe you can talk a little bit more about that, Chanel. So um, my time is split up, I would say, about 50-50 between the hospital here at the downtown campus, and then I'm um, at the Southwest Community Center on Wednesdays and Fridays for outreach. And, and, and it's during those times that I actually meet with patients. I follow up with them once they've been discharged from the hospital or some of our community partner members, they will come with me on home visits to actually um, follow up with the patients at their homes. You check in and see how they're doing or what yes. they've changed or what they still need help with. Yep, all of those things. So if a listener wanted to learn more about this program, is there a, a place where they could find out more? Absolutely. There's a couple different places that you can look. Um, you can go to upstate.edu backslash trauma. And on that webpage, you will find our Violence Education Prevention Outreach Program link. You can click on that. And our brochure is listed there with some phone numbers. And then Chanel can share her information. Yes, I can be reached by anyone if you have any questions about the program, um, the criteria of the program, or if you just have any questions and you need to be pointed in the right direction at 315-414-6070. And also, I have drop-in hours. I'm at the Southwest Community Center every Wednesday and Friday from 8.30 a.m. until 5 p.m. So... If, if you encounter someone who feels like a patient who feels like they need weapons for protection, um, what's the alternative to that? If they feel fearful enough that they need a gun or think they need a gun to protect themselves or their family, what's the alternative? So that's actually something that I come across very often. And so at that point, I do a safety assessment and myself and the patient, we actually come up with a safety plan for when they discharge from the hospital. And that may include changing where they live. That may include having someone, um, a point person to call if they start to feel as though they may have to interact with violence. And then that's also where our community partners come in with their 
their strong ties to the community. They're able to speak to the patient and speak to the perpetrators and prevent some retaliation from happening. Okay. Um, I've also seen uh, risk factors for subsequent violent injury. Are there some sort of red flags that you may come across when a person um, comes in as the victim as to, you know, that might predict that they would uh, have issues later? Not being connected to a primary care provider. So if someone is not connected with um, managing their health, I oftentimes see them come back in for complications. And as far as perpetuating uh, the violence or being a victim of violence again, oftentimes if, if that patient is discharged back into the same environment, they have a very high likelihood of, of coming back. Is some of the violence um, tied to poverty? Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's a much bigger issue. Yes, so that's our public health model and how we interact with the community on a, on a more global scale. So that's more of the 30,000 foot view for us and ways in which we can handle some of those issues by working with um, the administrators within the city, uh, the mayor's office, the county commissioners, um, the larger institutions to kind of address some of those issues um, so that we can help these victims um, not feel like victims anymore and not feel like they need to retaliate um, from what has happened to them um, because it does become a, a cycle and you have to break the cycle at some point and um, we've been very successful by having Chanel as part of our team full-time to be able to be in the community in which she lives herself um, to connect with these individuals um, and so many times we have a lot of resources here in Syracuse um, that a lot of people don't know we have. So sometimes it's just a matter of knowledge. Or connecting so, or the people, connecting to, what the people right. to what they need. And Chanel's really, really good at that. So that was the that's the piece that this program really thrives on is being able to have that referral, constant connection with um, the hospital and the community. And that's where Chanel comes in for this program. We've been very, very blessed to have this Thank position. You. You're welcome. Are most of your patients um, men or women? Men. Most of them are men. Most of them are men. And is it younger age? Or does it range? I, I see a range. I see a very surprising range. As young as 13, as old as 50. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, this program started a few years ago. Do we have any indication as to whether it's helping? We actually have some really nice um, data that has come out in just the six months that Chanel has been here. Um, we have more than uh, doubled our um, time in this program and how many people have signed up for the program. So in just the six months that Chanel has been able to be here, she has been able to connect with those individuals um, that have been seen at the hospital and then released and that we're not inpatients here. So that was kind of a group of folks that we were missing. Um, and we've more than doubled in just the six months that she's been here. It's really, it's an amazing number for us. And it, because it is voluntary. I mean, Absolutely. Absolutely. People it's have to, voluntary. you have to convince them that this is something that would be worth their time. So how yes. do you do that? Well, I, I start with my assessment. And in that assessment, I'm asking questions like, you know, what's your highest level of education? Are you interested in getting back in school? Um, are you employed? Would you be interested in getting employment? And after I get 
yeses to those answers, I go, well, we have a program here, and most times people are very willing to enroll. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come and discuss this. My guests have been social worker Chanel Beard and trauma injury uh, prevention coordinator nurse um, Kim Nasby, and we've been talking about the Violence Education Prevention Outreach Program at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next up, we'll hear about plans for a hospital unit devoted to children and adolescents with psychiatric problems on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. State Medical University. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Recently, Upstate Medical University, Upstate University Hospital, received the green light from two state agencies to open an eight-bed inpatient adolescent psychiatric unit in early 2019. Here to talk about this is Dr. Wanda Fremont. She's the medical director of Upstate's Child and Adolescent Psychiatry Clinic and the chief of the Division of Child Psychiatry. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So the clinic right now, the Child and Adolescent Psychiatric Clinic, um, is outpatient only? Yes. Okay. And so Upstate currently doesn't have any inpatient child or adolescent? No, at at this time only Hutchings uh, has an inpatient unit here in the city. Okay. So that's Hutchings Psychiatric Center. So this would this is good news. This will change what what yes. we're able to offer. Yes. So you can talk, can you talk about what this is going to mean to the community? Um, this is going to be um, an eight bed unit for uh, children and adolescents ages twelve to seventeen, um, and it will uh, provide a uh, intensive inpatient hospitalization uh, for these children, averaging five to seven days. Uh, so that children won't have to be sent to uh, sometimes as far as two or three hours away to hospitals uh, where it's very hard for the families. Right. Okay. And that's what's happening now. So hopefully yes. when this will. Yeah. Now, um, what types of um, diagnoses are you anticipate you'll be dealing with? Um, children who have um, severe um, psychiatric problems, uh, including uh, suicidal ideation, um, uh, uh, severe uh, problems with uh, depression, anxiety, where they need a um, more intensive environment for treatment. Uh, and it will include trauma-based treatments uh, and family systems therapy, individual therapy, group therapy. Okay. So the family will be able to be involved? Absolutely. Locally. The families are going to be crucial to treatment, too. Now, is, do you anticipate admission will be mostly through the emergency department? All admissions will come through the emergency department, and children will be evaluated by a child psychiatrist in the emergency department to determine what level of care they'll need and if they would benefit from inpatient treatment. Okay. So the need for um, these additional uh, adolescent and child psychiatry beds in our community, that was one of... Um, 17 recommendations by the Youth Mental Health Task Force a couple years ago? Yes. Are there 
other things that are needed? Yeah, this was one part of the uh, recommendation based on the shortage of child inpatient beds. But equally important are other services, um, outpatient services, uh, including um, expansion of uh, several different uh, outpatient uh, clinics. Um, another uh, recommendation was partial hospitalization, a program where kids would still be living with their families but would be um, in a, a highly uh, uh, intensive treatment program during the daytime. Um, and we recommended um, uh, more uh, home-based services. So um, the whole picture really is needed, and the inpatient uh, services are only um, one small piece of what we're working on to extend our services to children and their families. So this is sort of just the start, yes, really. Yes, yeah, and, exactly. Improving. And we're um, actively working with our community organizations um, who have been very helpful and supportive to try to expand services um, that are available for children on an outpatient level. How many beds are at Hutchings for um, I believe that currently there are 19 beds available for children. So, and, and there'll be sort of some cooperation between... Yes, we're working closely with uh, Hutchings, too, um, in terms of how to, to uh, be helpful. Hutchings will often have children who need longer hospitalization stays, um, and so coordination will be very important. Okay. And again, Upstate serves a huge region, so yes. some of the patients, it's not just going to be Syracuse. There'll be patients from counties surrounding. Yes, um, all the way up to uh, Watertown, Canadian border, down to uh, the southern tier, Binghamton, um, Utica. So you mentioned um, some of the diagnoses, the depression, anxiety, suicide, ideation. Are these issues that are becoming more of a of a, an issue in um, adolescents and teens, are you seeing? Yes, it's a it's a nationwide problem, um, and we certainly feel it locally. Uh, there have been a number of studies that have recently been published showing the increase in uh, depression in young adolescents uh, and young adults, increased suicidal ideation, um, and uh, if uh, most most of the hospitals around the country are experiencing the same difficulties that we do locally in terms of children who are coming to the emergency room and then there's not adequate services. Um, so this is a nationwide problem, which is being addressed by a uh, number of uh, um, professional uh, institutions. Well, some of these things I can see where maybe uh, they could be dealt with outpatient-wise. That's the goal, that and, and proactive and preventative um, care. Um, so children and their families don't come to the point where there's a crisis uh, rather than um, being able to be working on it on an outpatient basis. So in terms of being proactive and preventive, what, what can be done to prevent depression and anxiety? Um, there's a number of different approaches. One is even um, uh, starting to work with pregnant mothers who are struggling themselves. Um, and uh, there's a number of studies that have shown the effects of uh, depression in mothers who are pregnant um, on uh, the effects that they have on the newborn baby. Also, that very very early age, before the age of three, is crucial uh, in trying to help uh, mothers and parents who are um, challenged or having difficulties. And then working with the schools is another area that we're looking at in our community in terms of helping to identify and to provide services for kids who are struggling, working with families, um, and again, more outpatient services. 
Much more is being done now in the primary care office where um, uh, primary care clinicians are um, screening for depression and are collaborating and integrating with mental health um, services. And that's another uh, area that Upstate is uh, going to be expanding and um, building in the uh, new outpatient center where they have integrated care with behavioral health and primary care. So that's a few years off, yes, that's too, because that's, yeah. that's a big undertaking building and everything. But um, what sorts of advice do you give to schools at this point if they identify um, students, children who are struggling? Um, the collaboration is the most important piece, um, and many schools already have uh, school-based clinics where they not only have primary care clinicians but mental health providers. And it's also helping their staff and their teachers and able to identify, but also how to handle some of these kids who are having behavioral problems. Uh, but um, more collaboration is definitely needed uh, with the school districts. They're on the front lines, too. Right, right. Yeah. And, they, and I know different schools have different programs yeah. already sort of on their own in place. Um, but it is, it has been in this community a challenge to find services, outpatient services, yeah. let alone inpatient. Um, so is there anything that a parent can do sort of in the meantime? I mean, they're not, they're not a, a provider, but right. they're just a parent. Um, is there anything that they can do to sort of make the situation better or are there things they can avoid doing uh, so they don't make the situation worse if they've got a child who's struggling with depression? I think to begin with, um, because of the shortage of services, uh, talking with their primary care clinician um, would be The crucial. pediatrician? Yeah, and there is a program that we're very active in called CAPPC, and that's Child and Adolescent Psychiatry for Primary Care, and it's a statewide program with five educational institutions, Syracuse being one of them, Upstate Medical University, um, which provides uh, consultation to primary care physicians from uh, 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., five days a week, including phone consultation and at times face-to-face -face if the pediatrician or the family physician feels it's needed. Um, we have been, we've, we've uh, taken over four to 5,000 calls in the last five years. It's an OMH-funded grant. And um, OMH being Office, Office of, of Mental, Mental Health. Health. And, and the goal is really to help not only um, consultation, but education to primary care clinicians. We do a number of trainings so that they're able to handle the more mild to moderate uh, uh, cases of mental illness and difficulties uh, that children have. And we can spend more time working with the more uh, severely um, problematic kids. Uh, so I would encourage them to talk to their primary care clinician, the parents, um, and ask them to use the service. Uh, most of the clinicians in our community are already working with us, uh, and that's been a really important uh, collaborative partnership. Because uh, some of the pediatricians or family practice doctors are um, willing to prescribe if that's necessary, if medications yes. are necessary. Yeah. So, And it's not only about medications, too. So sometimes a child might be struggling with depression, not wanting to go to school, and it may be related to um, issues that uh, we help the clinicians uh, um, recommend for either testing to make sure there's not a learning disability, making sure that there's not other issues going on. So it's not only about medications, but uh, the services we offer provide um, recommendations for all modalities of treatment. Well, let me ask you this. If, if a child, a teenager, is um, threatening suicide and a parent or loved one uh, you know, is at wit's end, doesn't know what to do, brings them to the emergency yes. room because where else do you go? 
what happens once they get there? At Upstate, they're seen by initially by the uh, uh, emergency room staff, but then a child psychiatry um, psychiatrist or sometimes an adult psychiatrist, depending on um, what shift we're looking to try to increase our services. So there's always a child psychiatrist available. Um, but at this time, they'll be evaluated by a child psychiatrist or adult psychiatrist who will meet with the child, meet with the parents, uh, do a thorough assessment, uh, and then determine what the best level of service will be. It doesn't always mean that a child has to be hospitalized uh, immediately if they're having suicidal ideation. The key piece in, that's where we're working with the community, is having referrals. So we could say, ideally, you don't need to come into the hospital today, but we would like you to see a clinician at one of the community clinics um, within the next couple days. So that, and that's the piece that, that we really need to work on with our to community get more partners. Yeah, that. And they've all been very active and helpful. Have you seen that teen suicide series um, called 13 Reasons? I, I just wondered if there was sort of an uptick in, um, you know, teens. The, I think the feeling is that more generally it's related to a number of different issues. Uh, social media certainly plays a big role uh, in it. Um, decrease in services. There's certainly much more stress on families, both economic um, and uh, there's a number of different reasons behind why we believe that there's an increase in, in suicidal ideation and depression among adolescents. So it's not just one movie that was made. But, no, no, but it, no. Did it get? Um, did it serve a purpose of getting people to talk about the issue of teen suicide? I believe it did, and I know that many of the uh, school districts actually sent letters to parents. Uh, but I don't know um, how constructive that was. Uh, again, I think there's both positive and negative from that. Okay. Well, it's good news that um, there'll be these additional beds um, next year. So tell me what child and adolescent psychiatry for primary care means. What is that? That's the name that we use for our organization, which uh, is actually uh, five educational teaching uh, uh, institutions, Upstate, Buffalo, Rochester, um, uh, Columbia, and Hillside Zucker. Uh, and this is a uh, group uh, who have come together and provide Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., phone consultation, face-to-face um, -face evaluations, and educational seminars and uh, uh, webinars for primary care clinicians. And let's say a primary care doc, pediatrician, says, I, I saw Johnny today. He's on Ritalin, but... Um, I don't know what, it's not helping, what do I do? They can call us, and we each take one day of the week. Um, but we all, we all know each other very, very well, and we cover for each other. And they'll get a psychologist within two hours. We return the call, and we'll say, uh, we'll talk to the primary care clinician, and we said, you know, have you tried this with Johnny, or has he been tested for littering disabilities, or have you maxed out on the Adderall, or have you done any therapy? And then we will um, provide that consultation the same day within a couple hours by phone. And then we'll follow up. We keep an electronic record. It's all confidential. And let's say six weeks from now, pediatrician calls us and says, hey, uh, you know, this isn't really working. Um, I'm, I'm, maybe I miss some anxiety. Um, then we might say, you know, here are some tools. You can use some scales. Here's the anxiety scale. And let's say we just, and then he said, well, you know, he just told me he's hearing voices. And then we say, whoa, that's more than you should handle. We will see him and do an evaluation, do a two-hour evaluation, and we get the kids in within two weeks. And there's no charge because it's the grant, so we don't have to worry about insurances. We don't. There's no waiting list. Oh. The kids get seen one time only at Upstate. We also work with St. Joe's. And then we'll provide a, a report back to the pediatrician.
Also, we do intensive educational trainings. Uh, For primary care providers or pediatricians? Care, to... Yeah, uh, and it can be nurse practitioners, pediatrician, family practitioners. Now, there are, I think, 38 states that have this program, so we're now part of a big consortium, but we're the second largest program in the country. Um, and we recently got an award by the American uh, Psychiatric Association for our work. Um, I appreciate you coming to talk about that. Well, thank you. My guest has been Dr. Wanda Fremont, the Medical Director of Upstate's Child and Adolescent Psychiatry Clinic. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Bruce Bennett, emeritus professor from Wells College and author of the newly released book about Donald Trump called Our Rough Beast from Foothills Publishing, gave us two poems about memory for this issue. As is always true of Bruce's poems, they are rich in details and evoke strong emotion on the listener. Here is Missed Anniversary. It was the day you died, and I forgot. I even had a poem I could have read. I could have brought you back, but I did not. I wasn't thinking. I was at a spot that you knew well. You just weren't in my head. It was the day you died, and I forgot. It's not as if it mattered, not a lot. There were some moving things I might have said. I could have brought you back but I did not. So now I'm writing this and saying what I didn't. It's always something else instead. It was the day you died, but I forgot. I didn't do what I've always done. We plot revisitings, fresh chances when one's dead. I could have brought you back, but I did not. So here's this truth. You left us with that shot. We could not, did not, follow where that led. It was the day you died, and I forgot. I could have brought you back, and I did not. His second poem is called <clears throat> 62 Years, A Pantoum. We think it's better if he doesn't know. 62 years is really a long time. Of course, it's not as if he would remember, but still, he's going to sense it all the same. Sixty-two years is really a long time. We know he's going to miss her. He just will. He's going to sense that it is not the same, but still, it's going to hurt him if we tell him. He's going to sense it anyway. He will. But what's the point of saying it straight out? It's only going to hurt him if we tell him, even if he forgets it right away. There is no point in saying it straight out. It doesn't matter that he won't remember. He's going to know then that she isn't here. We think it's better if he doesn't know.
This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, we'll have an update on the use of electronic cigarettes. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.